Hello and welcome back to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics. I'm Laura Macon-Isherwood. How much a month do you pay for your water and what choice do you have if you're not happy with your provider? Is there even an alternative? If you're listening for a number of nations around the world, the truth is you might have at least some say on your H2O. But in England, it's a different story. That's because England's water industry was privatised in 1989, a decision by Margaret Thatcher to try to increase competition and efficiency. But more than three decades on, one of those private businesses, Thames Water, appears to be in a bit of hot water. The utility company, which is responsible for 15 million customers across London and the Thames Valley has revealed it has debts of around £14 billion. That's a staggering 80% of the value of the company's assets. And that's not even to mention the ongoing criticism about sewage dumping. Here to discuss how the privatisation of water companies appears to have gone down the pan and the potential solutions to clean things up is Robert Branston, Associate Professor in Business Economics at the University of Bath. Hi, Robert. Hello. Okay, so what was the rationale for the privatisation of water companies originally in England? Well, well, firstly, let me say it was actually privatised in England and Wales. Uh, Now, that may be a small sort of technical point, but it is important for for comparisons and the current situation with Thames Water. Now, if we sort of wind the clock back, the industry was privatised in 1989 at the height of sort of Margaret Thatcher's power. And I think we can identify two key reasons as to why privatisation took place. Firstly, the Conservative Party at that time had a strong belief in the use of the private market. So they wanted to introduce private sector efficiency into the water sector because they thought profit-seeking firms would be the most efficient and effective way of organising the production of many things, water being one of them, but it also applied to the telecoms industry, the gas industry, the electricity industry, and so on. So that was sort of one overriding uh, argument. It was this political ideology. Beyond that, though, I think we have to understand that in the 80s, the UK didn't have particularly clean water services. There was this strong pressure from Europe that we needed to up our game. And so investment was needed in the industry to improve our water services, to improve the environment. And so the government at the time thought this money could be provided by private sector Uh, involvement in the industry rather than the state having to borrow or find the funds from taxation. And did that kind of work in the first instance there? You said about trying to up the levels of quality and everything. Did did that work? I think the record of the industry has been mixed. So so in some sense, yes, quality has improved. And you can go on to uh, the industry's regulator off what and see lots of statistics that show there have been some improvements. The trouble we have faced is that fundamentally the problem with having profit-seeking water companies is there a difference between what those companies are looking for, which is profits for shareholders, and what we as society are looking for, which is cheap water services that give us good quality services and a good, clean, safe environment too. There has been these tensions between those two competing goals. So let's wind it back then to 1989. And when Thames Water was set up, how was it funded back then? Did it have any debt? No. So one of the things that the Conservative government did at the time was wipe away any debts that the water companies had previously accrued. And actually, they were given an endowment of money in the bank at the time they were privatised to help them go forward. 
And the idea was that if they needed more money, that money should either come from the fees that consumers paid, you know, the water charges we pay monthly or yearly, but also if needed, the companies could borrow some money to sort of smooth flow so they could invest today and have the benefits into the future. Uh, what we've seen, though, is that in recent years, that debt side of things has increased massively. And that is where Thames Water has got itself into trouble. And that debt level for Thames Water is at £14 billion now. So how have they reached that figure? Is it a case of corporate greed or have there been other issues that have led it to fall into that hole? I think there are two broad issues behind the the significant level of debt that Thames Water has. But let's be clear, it's not just Thames Water. There is a collective debt of all of the water companies of more than £60 billion. Uh, And I think in the case of Thames Water, we can see in recent years that debt has increased at the same time as many billions of pounds in profits have been taken away from the company in the form of dividends and sort of other loans given to the owners of the company. So in that sense, you could say there's certainly an element of corporate behaviour uh, I'm not sure I would personally use the word greed, but but equally, you know, dividends have been paid at the time that debt has been going up. So you could say they are debt funded dividends. But also, we know that the industry has required significant investment to take place. And, you know, investment costs money. Uh, that money has to be found from somewhere. And that is either from debts, from higher charges, paid more by consumers or the owners of the company actually putting more money into the business. And we actually see a combination of all three of those things taking place because charges have gone up. The other thing, though, to recognize here, I think, is that debts have gone up because of the debts themselves. So as inflation has gone up, so has the interest payments that need to be made for that debt. And therefore, overall, it's debt on top of debt. Can Thames Water turn it around? Can they get out of this mess? In theory, yes, but will it happen is uncertain. And and I say that because clearly Thames Water has a number of owners. At the moment, that is mainly pension funds. If those pension funds want to continue to own Thames Water, they're going to have to put up some more cash. One of the biggest owners, the university uh, pension scheme, of which I declare I am part, uh, has said they support Thames Water and they will put more money in, but it needs all of the owners collectively to agree to that. They did already put some money in in the last sort of 18 months. But the point is they need to put their hands in their pockets and provide even more money. And if they won't do that, then Thames Water is in real trouble and may not survive. If they do, there is certainly a way out of this crisis, especially if interest rates and inflation start to go down in the next couple of years. But it's certainly dicey at the moment. What happens if Thames Water can't turn it around? Like what happens to the customers? Well, firstly, I would I would stress that people who are currently served by Thames Water don't have to panic. They will still have water coming out of their taps. They will still be able to flush the toilet and the sewage services will still be provided. So I think that is absolutely key to understand. Beyond that, what would happen is the government would effectively take over. There would be a special process of administration. The trouble, of course, is who is going to buy these assets. You can't, as you normally would, break up the company. You can't sort of sell off the crown jewels, if you like, and leave the bad stuff behind because water companies work in a very integrated way. The company that owns the sewage system has to own the sewage treatment works. The company that provides the water to your home needs to own the pipes that get it to your home 
and the reservoirs that provide the water. So, so basically, a new water company would have to take over. And the question is, what would that water company look like? Let's just dig into that sort of government link or the potential for the government to kind of step in. There's been a lot of calls for renationalisation of water, essentially. But what does that mean? Nationalisation, I think, is a, is an interesting idea. I think we all intuitively think of things like water as a, as a public good. And it's perhaps hard to understand why something that the public generally needs is being provided by a profit-seeking company who is just looking to make money out of providing these services. So I think a lot of people see the sense in this idea that it should be owned by the state or at least by an organisation designed to serve the public. The difficulty we have here is that the industry is owned by private shareholders. And changing that so it is owned by the state is going to be expensive. So the government would have a choice. They can either go to the stock market and buy the shares of Thames Water. It could probably buy those shares quite cheaply now, but then it would, of course, inherit this big pile of debt. Equally, the government could say, well, okay, let's wait for the company to go bankrupt and we can just buy the assets. But then the cost of doing that is uncertain because who would the government be bidding against? Private sector companies might want to take over. So the government would have to outbid anybody else or would have to create an environment where no other firms would want to bid. But that, of course, is quite dubious. They could be taken to court. There could be compensation claims from existing shareholders. So we're still looking at vast amounts of money needed to buy these assets because they do still have value. So whichever way you look at it, it's going to cost the government a lot of money. So let's look at other nations around the United Kingdom specifically. And let's turn to Scotland. So consumers there don't pay for their water bills separately at all, don't, do they? Can you just talk to me about that scenario there? And why haven't customers in the UK kicked up a fuss about this? Okay, so as I said earlier, the, the industry was privatised in England and Wales, but notably not the other parts of the United Kingdom. So in Scotland, water services are currently provided by a company called Scottish Water, and that is owned by the Scottish government. The way that the charges for water services in Scotland work is that it is part of the council tax that individual uh, households in Scotland pay, and the charges are based on the size of the property. Quite why people in England and Wales haven't sort of raised this as an issue, I suppose, is lack of knowledge. Most people in England and Wales see that they pay for their electricity, see that they pay for their gas, so it makes sense to also expect a water bill. And in Wales, like you said, water's been privatised there, but Welsh Water operates as a not-for-profit company. So how does that work in practice and how does it compare to sort of the English system? Okay, so, so to answer that question, we actually need to take a step back and go back to the beginning of the privatisation process. So water services in Wales were privatised as they were in England at the same time, and they were initially privatised to a profit-seeking company. What happened, though, is that uh, a number of years ago, the company that ultimately owned the water services in Wales got into a bit of financial trouble. It became part of a bigger group with interests in electricity. For various reasons, the water interests were sold off, uh, I think it was for £1, to a new not-for-profit company that was created. 
which is the company we now know as uh, Welsh Water. And that is what is called a company limited by guarantee. So it is professionally run, it is professionally organized, but crucially, it doesn't have shareholders who are looking for profit. Any money that that company makes is reinvested through further investment in the Welsh water sector or returned to customers in the form of lower bills. To make the company run, those professional managers who do the day-to-day operations are accountable to a number of uh, trustees, so-called members, who are supposed to represent uh, the Society of Wales, or at least the sort of the, the public who are getting water services in Wales, and indeed who have to live in that natural environment which is impacted by those water services. Does that reinvestment of cash mean that people living in Wales that are served by Welsh Water are getting a better deal, but also maybe better standards of water? Is there more investment in that infrastructure, you know, preventing leaks, uh, and also in technology as well? Quite whether you can say they get a good deal is very hard to say because each area in the country has its own geographical challenges. We do, though, know that charges are capped by the regulator off what, and they try to take into account the individual challenges that companies face with their geographical area and say what is broadly fair for the companies to charge. So here I wouldn't so much talk about the pricing and value for money, But I would talk about the fact that Welsh Water doesn't have to pay dividends to profit-seeking companies. So there is a huge cost that Welsh Water simply does not face, which the profit-seeking water companies in England do face. So in that sense, it is better positioned because either it can charge customers less or it can reinvest the money in providing better services. And we know companies need lots of money because, as you mentioned earlier, there's lots of reports about uh, sewage being released into rivers and seas and increasing concerns around that and hence massive investment needed in the future to try to address those challenges. Let's talk about that sewage now that you've mentioned it again. How are these companies being allowed to discharge waste into our waterways, our rivers, our seas? How are they allowed to do this? Well, I think here we have to remember that the water industry is one where we have lots of physical infrastructure and where that infrastructure goes back many years. So when you want to make a change, when you want to stop sewage being discharged into the sea or the river, it actually takes quite a long time to build up the infrastructure that allows you not to do that. So I think, firstly, the problem is one of historical legacy. As I said to you at the beginning of of the privatization process was partially about addressing the quality of our water services. So the issue of, of the environment and quality goes back many decades, and that simply takes a long time to address. The other issue I think we need to recognize is that the UK population is now bigger. So we're putting more sewage into the system because there are more of us using it. And secondly, we know we have changing weather patterns. So, you know, there are more uh, flooding, for example. So that is a challenge for the system itself. So here, I suppose you could characterize it as being the perfect storm of more use, historical underinvestment and caring more about the environment. So, so there's lots of things that explain it. But more importantly, I think uh, the industry for many years hasn't really had the knowledge to work out how much sewage it is putting into the system because quite often it simply hasn't had the monitoring 
to know when it's using a lot of these facilities, which are designed to be uh, overflows, if you like, for extreme storms. So to stop a sewage works being overwhelmed, they have this ability to sort of empty stormwaters into the river or the sea. And it just wasn't known how often these were being used because the kit hadn't been put in place to monitor those discharge uh, events. Does it need to be policed and how can it be policed? Or is this just going to be an ongoing issue, I suppose, we just have to deal with? Well, in theory, it should already be policed. Uh, And I say that because there are two organisations we need to be mindful of. The first is Ofwal, which is the industry's financial regulator, but also has various other sort of powers uh, because of the licenses that water companies hold to provide their services. And so in theory, that is one area where activities can and should be policed. And they are getting increasingly strict. So there's widely agreed acceptance that they probably weren't that effective in the first few years of privatisation. But in the last sort of five to 10 years, they've certainly got a bit tougher, I think, on the industry. The other one that is perhaps most directly relevant to the issue of sewage discharge are our environmental regulators. So that would be the Environment Agency in England and the equivalent sister organisation in Wales. And here they give licences to water companies to discharge into rivers and seas. Quite often those licences were historical. Uh, And so there is limited power for the Environment Agency to sort of say, no, you can't do that anymore. But certainly they do have some ability to hold the industry to account. And actually, in the last couple of days, we saw the Environment Agency had taken Thames uh, to court and actually got a fine of several million pounds put on Thames water for illegally discharging sewage into a river. So is that enough power? That is certainly a very good question to ask. And, uh, you know, going to the rivers and seas would probably tell you that there probably isn't enough power or at least use of the powers that they have. But equally, as I said earlier, when you want to clean up your rivers and seas, you can't do it overnight. Is this all going to eventually fall back on the general public and the bills that they're paying increases, not just to maybe cover those debts that Thames Water might be trying to find but also, like you say, invest in trying to make our waterways work better. Ofwat has said that there won't be exceptional increases, but there may be some. Well, ultimately, if we need more investment in the sector, someone has to pay. Who is that someone? We already know these companies have lots of debt. So I think borrowing even more money is not sustainable. So that leaves you with three other possibilities. The first is that the owners of these companies pay. And given the current uncertainty about the viability of Thames Water, it doesn't seem reasonable to expect lots of shareholders to suddenly stump up tens of billions of pounds. Uh, And that therefore leaves either the government to pay or us consumers. Uh, And we know if the government pays, we as individual taxpayers are going to have to fund that money through taxation. So it seems to me the choice is either we pay as consumers with our water charges or we pay as citizens through higher taxation. So ultimately, we in society are going to pay one way or the other, I think. Well, Rob, thanks so much for joining me in the bunker. I've learned a lot about how I get my water and also how it's being paid for or perhaps managed. Thank you very much for having me. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. 
On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker Daily was presented by Laura Makin-Isherwood. Produced by Kasia Tomashevich, with additional production from me, Adam Wright. Audio was edited by Robin Lieber, with the managing editor, Jacob Jarvis. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, Musics by Kenny Dickinson and the art by Jim Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>